This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. John Williams, welcome to the show. Hi. It's a pleasure to have you on. Do you prefer, here's what I want to ask you, because you've had, <laughs> as an author, published author, you've had books published under John Lincoln, under John L. Williams, John Williams, John Lincoln. I'm, yeah. a, I'm guessing your name is John Lincoln Williams, right? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, when I started writing was long enough ago that, uh, you know, Google wasn't really a thing. So being called John Williams was meant, you know, okay, there might be a couple of others near you in the bookshop, but uh, it didn't mean that you put your name into a search engine and you get about 15 billion hits on the guy who wrote the music for Star Wars before you ever get to me. Right. <laughs> so what prompted you to change? Is it a case of you do, we'll get onto your work anyway, but you've got sort of a true crime book that I've got in my hand here called Bloody Valentine about the Cardiff Three. That's John L. Williams. This is such a minor point. It just interests me. But then Grey in the Dark, which is your latest fictional novel, is John Lincoln. Is that a way of differentiating between types of book? Yeah, partly. I mean, uh, yeah, I moved to John L. Williams after a while to, from John Williams just to try and you know make it a bit easier to search for. And then but I'd written um, like literary fiction, just as John Williams. And with the crime novel, I thought, well, you know, this is significantly different. And load, you know, loads of crime novelists do this. You know, Ellie Griffiths, for instance, was, you know, is really Dominica De Rosa and published a bunch of books under that name. Mm. It's it's kind of a genre thing. It sort of, it just separates it out. So, you know. It's a yeah, writer, and, writer thing that was mere mortals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if you like the John Lincoln books, you don't end up buying some book of mine that you, you know. I've got, yeah. It's I've completely got, yeah. different. So tell me about your childhood then. You grew up in Cardiff. Yeah. What's that like? I don't think of a. I've been to Cardiff once in my life for a playoff final for Huddersfield back in 2004, I believe. What was life like growing up in Cardiff? Well, I actually grew up in a little village just outside Cardiff. So, but my dad worked in Cardiff in the in the Cardiff docks. There's a sort of family business there, going right back to the beginning of the city. So we're kind of well, well invested in the history of the place, and uh, particularly, I guess, the Cardiff docks, which by the time I was growing up, you know, were not you know at the turn of the 20th century, Cardiff was the busiest port in the world, you know, because of coal. All, right. all the shipping ran on coal, so everyone dropped off their cargo and loaded up on coal in Cardiff. So it was, you know, it was an important city at that time. By the time I'm growing up in the 60s and 70s, it's really, you know, in terminal decline. Everything's closing. It's, you know, there's about one club in the place. It's grey, and but it has a spirit, you know. It's like great old cafes. Loads of great record shops for some reason, which is what where I spent a lot of my time as a teenager. But yeah, you felt like it was a place you got out, really. You know, the, once you hit eighteen, if you had any ambition at that time, really, you just got out. Most of the people I grew up with don't live in Cardiff anymore. The uh, serious stoners do live in Cardiff, but 
is that down to the, the the industry declining or what do you put that down to what happened that made it such a downshift yeah no it was the same as you know i mean cardiff in many ways is more like a northern city than it is like anything else i mean till i've been to manchester i hadn't really been anywhere that was like cardiff because you go from you go to bristol which is totally different kettle of fish and london obviously is its own thing mm-hmm. but when i went up to manchester the first time i thought oh right this is really the same you had the same vibe and yeah i mean it was the end of one era and gradually in cardiff and same in manchester you know and leads to as well i think uh you know that what seems to have happened is that with the old industries going we've got the new industries and the new commercial centers and people and all and you get these regional hubs and all the money seems to be sucked into certain places and you know cardiff's one of those cardiff these days it's you know it's changed beyond recognition Things like building the big, you know, the Millennium Stadium, you know, it was a big driver for tourism and stuff. I mean, when I was a kid, no one went to Cardiff for the weekend. Now it's like, a, you know, a popular place to spend your weekend. But, you know, a lot of the places around Cardiff are absolutely on their knees because, yeah, all the money, all the shops, all the restaurants, everything's in the city now. So I have kind of mixed feelings about it. In a way, it's great. You know, it's great to see it lively, but something of... It had a really, you know, very particular spirit when I was growing up, and now it's a bit more like everywhere else. Is it classed as being the capital, obviously, of Wales? Is it classed as the big city down there when you've got areas surrounding it? Like, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's easily the biggest city. I mean, after that, you've got Swansea, which is much smaller and much less, you know, much less revived. And then you've got Newport, which is great, but, you know, again, much smaller and really, really hasn't, you know, had any of the benefits that uh, Cardiff's had. Though that said, I don't know if you've been watching the news the last few days, it, you know, kicked off uh, majorly in Cardiff with rioting a couple of nights ago. Yes. Was that Cardiff? Was that where it was? I know yeah, it was yeah. Wales. Yeah. Two boys got run over, right? And police yeah, were involved the, or something well yeah two boys got run were being run over everyone in the area said police have been chasing them they denied then, it right and the police denied it so there was a big riot overnight and the next day because these days everyone's got cctv in their front door mm-hmm. they got pictures of the police van following the kids so you know shocking really where's that um, now do you know where what's so I only saw it probably two nights ago the day of recording what are we on 25th of may saw it a couple of nights ago I'd seen the CCTV footage. Yeah. I've not heard anything since then. What's the latest update? Well, the police are uh, just, just getting worse. Their excuses are getting worse and worse. They then said, oh, well, yeah, we were following them for a bit. But then, you know, when the accident happened, we were actually quite a way away. But that's but the reason for that is because the kids went through like a dead-end street with some bollards at the end. So the police van had to go round. So it hadn't given right. up following them. It was just trying to catch them further down, you know. And yeah, they've just lied and lied again, which is yeah, depressing because you really think things should have got better by now. Is there much of an issue with crime, not just from youths and because that kind of happens everywhere, even in Huddersfield, the nickname is Stabbersfield. Every week someone's getting stabbed. Is there a problem with crime nationally? It seems to be with the younger generation, but what's Cardiff like? Do you know? I can't really say. I mean, you know, my son grew up there. He, he didn't have much trouble, really. I mean, you know, nothing beyond what you'd expect for a teenager going out to clubs and stuff, you know, mm. and got in a fight once, you know. Cardiff's always been a bit of a place where people come down on Friday night. If you want a fight, 
you know, there's like elective violence, you know, it's like <laughs> guys yeah. who have failed to pull, you know, beat each other up instead. Yeah. But not much that's, you know, it's a perfectly nice place to be. Okay. Speaking of teenagers, I was reading that when you were in your teenage years, you joined the punk scene. And mm-hmm. that's when that's when you moved to Camden Town to play in some bands I read online. Um yeah, no, I came to Cam I came to London when I was 17. I just wanted, you know, punk was happening. It wasn't happening in Cardiff. I was totally obsessed with it. Got up to London, uh, shared a flat with some mates, got a job. And uh, I did a like a punk fanzine when I was in London. I ended up sleeping on the floor of this band called uh, Scritty Politi, who formed at Leeds Art School, funnily oh, enough, right. and then come down to London. And they were like, <clears throat> you know, they turned into a big shiny 80s pop thing, but at the time they were a sort of post-punk band and they were super friendly and helpful. So I did that and then I went back to Cardiff and formed a band in Cardiff and we made a single, which is terrible, but quite rare these days. <laughs> well, that's something, publishing a rare single. Yeah. So let's have a look just through your timeline then. I've got here, in the summer of 89, this is when you went to travel around America, North America, and you were speaking to some crime fiction writers over there. How did that come about? Well, after I, my musical career, if you can call it that, kind of fizzled to an end, I was back in London. I was working in record shops and bookshops in Camden Town. And... Uh, me and my mates were really obsessed with American crime fiction of the time. People like Elmore Leonard and James Elroy and James Lee Burke, stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, you know, just literally in a pub one evening talking about what we liked about the books. And you kept saying, yeah, what I really love is like the setting, you know, makes you really want to go to LA or Miami or, you know, Detroit or wherever. And uh, by this point I'd started what well, I was doing some bits of journalism i was writing for the enemy and the face and uh, so i was getting a little bit of a uh, you know reputation for writing about books so i had this idea for a book myself why don't i go to all these places in the states meet all my favorite writers and describe what you know what those worlds are actually like and amazingly i got a publisher to um, pay me some money to do that which was just fantastic we're talking a time here way before the internet right so how and even before mobile phones 89 it's when i was born (laughs) (laughs) that's funny that's first i spoke to also did something significant in 1989 and i also said that's when i was born i like to point it out yeah my my point is how did you manage to organize meetings with these authors in such a time i think i you just had a bit, you know, it took a bit of a while, much more longer than they would do these days. You had to like call up their publishers or yeah, I mean, a lot of phone work in old fashioned speaking to people on the phone type work. So you'd phone up the publisher and they'd, they'd maybe give you a number of the New York agent. You'd phone the New York agent and they'd give you a number for the, uh, for the writer. I mean, there was a lot less media i suppose and pressure on most writers times so once you got once you manage to get a hold of them most people and the good thing about interviewing writers is they're all basically sitting at home writing so they're quite easy to pin down because <laughs> i tried to do a book on a follow-up on uh country musicians and that was a nightmare pre-internet it was almost impossible to find out where where were, you know, find out tour dates and, and things yeah. yeah you just couldn't get any of this information 
And yeah, I had to give up on that project. But yeah, for books, it, I mean, it took a little while, but it was actually, you know, quite simple once you just got hold of the phone numbers. It's interesting because generally, I even though it's 2023, that's the exact same process that I approach authors. Find a book, contact the publisher. Granted, it's by email now. And the whole exchange is then done via email. So it's amazing that 34 years later, the actual process is the same. Just the technology to do it means it's a quicker response time. I think that's quite Yeah, I mean, the funny thing, when I think about it, you know, a lot of my working day back then, I'd be literally with a phone in my hand, you know, on the landline. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> people Big up. phone bills back Certainly then. People. Yeah, yeah, it was a different, a totally different approach to things, you know. So that book was Into the Badlands, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Published by Flamingo in the early 90s. And and then obviously the the musician one was understandably a lot harder to tie down musicians, especially in America when they're, they're here, there, and everywhere. But your second book is the one which has also now got a second edition. The second edition coming out a couple of years ago. This is Bloody Valentine. So this is the story of the Cardiff Three, and it's basically a massive miscarriage of justice. Um, three black men wrongly convicted for a murder. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So what's what's the story then? How did you become involved in this? Yeah, Cardiff is not really. Uh, I mean, the Cardiff docks, which people who never live there sometimes call Tiger Bay, has a kind of reputation for violence and stuff. But actually, it was nonsense. Really, there hadn't been a murder there in God knows how long. But in '88, this girl was uh, brutally murdered, a young prostitute, and you know the police spent ages looking into it everyone was talking about it it was about nearly a year when no one was arrested and every time i was in london then but i was going back home a lot so and anytime i went home people were talking about it people had theories about who might have done it that kind of thing and my initial idea was well this sounds like a great i wanted to write a novel at this point i thought i've interviewed all these crime novelists how hard can it be? I'm going to give it a go. And this sounds like I'll, I'll just take the sort of, you know, the basics of this story and turn them into a novel. So I started doing that. But then the more, but then the police arrested these guys. They went to trial. They were convicted. And you thought, well, and at first I thought, well, you know, you, you see these papers, you know, you look at the newspapers on the front cover, you've got like, three dodgy looking guys and, you know, headlines saying animals. And you think, well, they've been convicted. Probably they've done it. But then I started looking into it some more and you just thought, Jesus Christ, this is absolutely outrageous. These three guys, there is no, there was no, well, it was almost pre-DNA, but there was literally no forensic evidence tying them to the uh, the murder room. There was loads of blood on the dead girl. None of their blood um uh, matched the you know matched that blood there was no there was no nothing essentially they clearly had loads of stuff that should identify the murderer and it didn't belong to any of these guys and yet basically after whatever it was nine months the police spent trying to find someone to charge with it they decided to you know round up some of the usual suspects and interrogate them they started with the boyfriend and interrogated him for like days on end till he cracked and uh, then they used that to put leverage on other people tried to make them confess they didn't confess but they got the boyfriend to implicate you know a couple of other people and they took it to court and 
I don't think these days it would have even gone to court and I don't think any jury would have convicted. But, you know, it was a much more racist time. The trial was took place not in they moved it from Cardiff to Swansea, which is basically certainly then an all white city. And uh, it was an all white jury. And they see these kind of black guys from the Cardiff docks. And clearly they just felt like, well, uh, they look like, you know, they look right. And somehow managed to find them guilty despite the absolute total lack of decent evidence against them. So yeah, once I <laughs> discovered all that, I thought writing a novel would be a bit, you know, a bit unimportant, really. So I got involved in the campaign to try and get the guys out of prison and uh, started writing it as a, you know, as a non-fiction account of what happened. Yes, yeah, so it's a brutally frank tale of not just the racism aspect, but also police corruption which got a bit of backlash for yourself. So the, the three men convicted, Tony Paris, Youssef Abdullahi, and Stephen Miller, right? Yeah. But based on what I've researched, there was five men arrested, but only those three were convicted. Like you've said, the, the blood match, none of them. Brutal, bizarre conviction. But I read that you got sued for libel by the police on the back of this book coming out. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, the, the book did pretty much stick it to the... Uh... South Wales Police and some police officers in particular. And at one point I um, printed, and one of the strange things, there were five five guys were tried and the jury verdict was baffling because two of them were found innocent and the other three were found guilty, which made no sense at all. One of the two who was found innocent was a guy called John Acty, and I talked to him and he blamed a particular copper who had it in for him for the reason he'd ever been charged in the first place. And uh, in passing, he said, yeah, and the same guy, he'd done it to me before, back in 83. Okay, so I put that in, and that was found to be, well, his solicitors claimed that was a libel. I actually, you, you could say anything you like about the, the actual, the main case itself, because it had been found, you know, they'd been found innocent, so clearly the police couldn't have acted well. Mm. But this back in 83 was... You know, they would claim that was a libel. I looked into it. The case back in 83, the judge had thrown it out of court and criticized the police evidence. But back then, the police federation who were backing the case, they'd won 97 straight libel actions. And what everyone thought was that if if a copper stands up in court in his uniform and says he's been libeled by this evil journalist over there, you know, the juries would always believe the copper. So the publisher's lawyer said, no, you just, you know, we just got to settle. So uh, the one person who made money out of that book was uh, DC, uh, DC uh, Thomas Mitchell. It's, it's interesting. And we have to remember for context, the early 90s, early to mid 90s, completely different time. Stories I've done from that time, there was riots in not just in Wales, but in England. Luton is one I've been looking at uh, specifically in 1995. They had riots there. And there was that aspect of, officers not being holier than thou necessarily but anyone in the general public would take the officer's word over anyone sure yeah so we had in- trust in the, there was a, still an yeah. idea that you trusted the police which ought you know would it would be great if one could just do that but as i say the events in cardiff two nights ago tell you that you can't always yeah what was your psychological state when you started finding out about this book because obviously it's there's choice words in there and it's it's heavy on 
not just the racist aspect, but the corruption as well. What was your psychological state whilst writing this? Did it get worse as you found out more? Or what was your objective writing this book? What was the outcome you hoped for? Well, what I wanted to do was write a book that wasn't just saying, oh, look, you know, this police case was wrong because of A, B, C, and D bits of evidence. I wanted to try and do something. I wanted to write about the community where it had happened and the way the police the way the police police certain communities, you know, and particularly underprivileged communities. I wanted to look at say, okay, why was it that those guys were picked by the police? What was the life what are the lives these people actually like? What were what was the life of this prostitute like? I didn't want in particular, I didn't want her just to be a prostitute, you know. I wanted to give her Lynette White, you know, a sense of how her life was. And in researching it, I got all these because the police took so long to convict anyone or to arrest anyone, they interviewed like everyone in the world of the sort of Cardiff underworld, if you like, all the prostitutes, prostitutes, clients. And I just, my main state of mind was thinking, Jesus Christ, is this really how, you know, how life goes for people? The detail of like reading the daily routines of all the Cardiff prostitutes is just, you know, really, really shocked me, actually. The things that people just take as being normal, really. <laughs> that you think, wow, yeah. And then I did all that. And then I went and picked up my kids, and you think, wow, it's you know, it's a God knows, it's a tough life. And then even reading the interviews with the punters, you know, some of those are some of the saddest things I've ever read. You know, guys who lived on their own their whole, you know, or live with their mum in the valleys, and literally the only women they've ever spoken to are Cardiff prostitutes. And you just realize it just made me aware of how lucky and privileged I was and am, and how hellish in 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 lots of different ways so many people's lives are. So yeah, it changed me a lot writing it. Can you tell me about this police efit that they had back in eighty eight of the prime suspect? Because it didn't exactly match the guys that were convicted. No, they had an efit which came, I think, mostly from a local girl, I think she was a teenager, who'd seen somebody, a man with a sort of bloodied hand, sat looking, you know, disconsolate near the murder site. And she, and she put together a picture of a kind of swarthy white guy um, who became known as Mr. X. And a lot of time was spent trying to find Mr. X. But when they couldn't find Mr. X, they uh, found three black guys who looked nothing like him instead, which uh, begs quite a lot of questions. The story will continue after these quick messages. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. And now, back to the story. Yeah, I mean, thankfully, really, the, the real killer was finally convicted in the early 2000s because of advances in DNA technology. This is after you released the first copy of the book, the first edition, should I say. Mm. But then he goes on to receive a minimum sentence less than the three guys that were convicted. How's that work? 
Yeah, you you tell me. I mean, it's I mean, it was great work that led to Jeffrey Gaffor was the guy's name, who indeed was a kind of swarthy, you know, more or less white guy, looked quite a lot like the EFIT. Mm-hmm. And they found him, yeah, as you say, because of DNA, because they had a better DNA sample. They then had a database, a DNA database, and they found a match with someone who was actually way too young to have been the killer, but it was like a family match. So they uh, looked at this guy's family and they found weird Uncle Jeffrey, and uh, who, uh, and when the police came, you know, came to his flat, he tried to take an overdose, but you know, they got him in time and he confessed. But yes, why his you know why his sentence what it is you tell me and uh, and then there was an inquiry afterwards which was a disgrace really where none of the coppers responsible basically for fitting up you know really ruining the lives of the Cardiff three ever faced any consequences at all though some minor witnesses who they'd bullied into testifying got prison sentences it's uh, the whole things really quite depressing and an absolute disgrace. It is. I mean, there's obviously the second edition, as I mentioned, which came out in 2021, a couple of years ago. It's got a new intro and afterwards, basically what you know since it was released almost 30 years ago at this point. What was the motive for publishing a revised, not too revised, but a, a revised edition of this book? Well, uh, I think, to be frank, the probably the really in thing that really kicked it off was suddenly there was a whole lot of TV programs about to be made, and people kept started calling me up and asking me you know, to be interviewed for TV programs about the case, and I and those sort of interviews are always quite frustrating, you know, because of TV you can never go into that much depth really, and so. You, I thought, well, it would be great to get my book back out there, which really gives you a bit more, yeah, gives you a lot more depth and context and really makes you understand who these people are rather than just being a photo that's flashed up and on the screen. And then you say like two sentences about them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's why really. You can't control the edit. Can you have a, a production studio, I suppose? Whereas if it's your written word, it goes out verbatim. Yeah, I'm just exactly. having a look on here about Jeffrey Gaffor, and apparently in January he was allowed out of prison on day release this year. That's right. Yeah, uh, I guess the sorry truth is that most murderers don't actually serve all that long, really, and it's only when it's a famous case that people go, "Oh my God, what? He's out already?" You know, I mean. How long has he been in? 20 years? Something. Yeah, basically, yeah. I mean, as murder sentences go, that's actually probably quite long. You know, a lot of people do a lot less time for uh, killing people. So, it's I don't more know. Than I his minimum like, anyway. His yeah, minimum was li- 12. Yeah. I would like to believe that, you know, people can redeem themselves, uh, but certainly with kind of sex murders you often you you do wonder really whether people are actually safe to be allowed out it's but i'm no expert on you know on those things here's an interesting question if the three convicted men were still in prison because this dna evidence hadn't have been found do you think like jeffrey they would have been released or would they have even though they had minimum sentences, do you think their parole options would have been less 
liberal, I suppose, as his. Well, there's a catch-22, isn't there, if you're actually innocent of a... The, the way to get released early is to say you were guilty. Then you then it shows you, you know, you've accepted responsibility for your actions. If you keep saying you're innocent because, hey, you're innocent, then you end up spending longer in prison, which is, you know, it's dreadful, dreadful situation. And... Uh, yeah, it's ironic, isn't it? Yeah. It's a strange one. I was going to ask you as well what your opinion is on rehabilitation. Do you think that someone who commits especially a violent sex crime, murder, such as that, do you believe that serving your time for that, even though you get a quote-unquote life sentence, which since the minimum terms were brought in, isn't life typically, do you believe that he has now served his time? I know you don't know the ins and outs of his mental state, but people like him, have they served their time? Should they be given a second chance? Is rehabilitation possible? I'm not sure there's a hard and fast rule, and I would sooner that was decisions made by you know skilled professionals. I suppose in the case of kind of sex crimes, there is a certain amount, there's probably a truth to say that as men get older and the testosterone dips and so forth, they are less likely to be carrying out you know, violent sex crimes, but as I say, I'm really no expert. And yet, I would just hope that the right people are making those decisions and they, you know, take everyone's point of view into account. Do you trust those experts' decisions? I'm no expert again. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think sometimes you've, um, and people are people, you know, people get things wrong, clearly, you know. Absolutely. No, but I, I think agree. it's case by case. I wouldn't want to make a, a hard and fast rule across the thing. I think, you know, it's different parole boards, you've got different people on them and so forth. It's not easy to it's not easy to make a blanket statement about it, I don't think. Fair enough. I'll take that. I'll accept that. Let's talk about your transition then into fiction writing. So after this comes out, Bloody Valentine in '94, I believe, with the first um edition. Yeah. You transition into fiction writing. Your first book comes out in 99. That's five pubs, two bars, and a nightclub, right? That's a, a short story book. Uh, yeah, well, funny enough, there seems a book that seems to keep falling off my... Uh, there's actually a novel called Faithless in 97. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I missed that one then. <laughs> yeah, everyone, yeah, pretty much everyone else did as well, so don't worry. <laughs> and that was set at... After writing Bloody Valentine, which was so heavy, and also, yeah, you know, at one point I thought I was going to lose my house to, you know, to pay off the copper. Uh, that's a whole other story. But yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was traumatic on lots of levels doing that book. So I thought, right, fic definitely time to get into fiction. No one's going to sue you for writing novels unless you're <laughs> <laughs> really reckless. So uh, yeah, I wrote. I wrote one set in London, um, based in that set in Camden Town, and then I moved back to Cardiff. And I wanted to write, and I felt in writing Bloody Valentine, which is about that Cardiff Docks community, that it was a really bleak book. But a lot, you know, the actual daily life of people, you know, people really know how to have a good time, and there's a lot of kind of humour and a lot of funny scams and things going on. So I decided to write a book that was like, you know. Just show that you know, uh, show that side of life. So it they're kind of like almost sort of comic crime short stories with the same characters cropping up in each of you know in, in different stories. So you mm. got a little cast. So you got 
one person's the lead in one story and so forth. And uh, yeah, and that actually, it really seemed to work because particularly in Cardiff, it was, you know, that book did really, really well. And even like the people I was writing about oh, were all reading it and, you know, <laughs> gave it the okay, which I was kind of worried about. A lot of people going, that's me, isn't it? That's me. I'm like, oh, not at all, mate. No, 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 no. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I ended up writing four books set in and around Cardiff, um, sometimes in the Cardiff docks, sometimes. And the big subject of all of them really was the redevelopment of the city, which was really starting to happen then in the late 90s, early 2000s. The money was suddenly all flowing in and that always, you know, so there's a lot of uh, dodgy dealings going on. And uh, yeah, so I uh, thought it was an interesting time to set some fiction in the city. And I love the city too, so, and there's not much, there aren't, Certainly back then, not many people writing novels set in it. So I was really, you know, it's really just good fun kind of bringing these places, you know, and putting them on the page. I think it's something we're seeing more of increasingly as authors writing about the places they grew up in. Um, John Barlow I had on, he writes about stories based in and around Leeds. That's where he grew up, obviously Cardiff here. I think it's quite interesting because it does bring, you can tell when you read these books, that the author knows the location like the back of the hand. And especially if the stories are based on stuff that may or may not have happened with wink <laughs> to people that you may or may not know, then that obviously brings it in. So you've got the the Cardiff trilogy, which yeah. is the one I mentioned. Then you've got Cardiff Dead and the Prince of Wales. Yeah. So I'm guessing that's all within the same universe, right? Same yeah, characters, exactly. just different yeah. little stories. Let's talk about your newest kind of it's not a trilogy yet, but series is the word mm -hmm. I'm looking for. And this is the uh, the Gethin Grey series the most recent one being gray in the dark so tell me about this this is about getting gray detective right investigating a murder yeah i mean really i mean i kind of what i love reading i guess traditionally has been like you know american private eye stories anything in that sam spade philip marlowe kind of tradition you can't really do straight ahead private eyes in britain because we don't really have them and if all they'd be doing is like you know, looking through companies' accounts online or something. It's not mm -hmm. exciting work. So I made up really a uh, a business for, for my guy, which is investigating miscarriages of justice, but for money as a kind of commercial enterprise. Mm -hmm. And so I came up with this guy, Gethin Gray, who's, you know, sort of late 40s or so. He's done a bit of this, bit of that. He tried to be a lawyer, but... Uh, Due to briefly going to prison, that didn't work out for him. But he's still, you know, in that world. And he, yeah, he gets the idea that he wants to investigate miscarriages of justice, and he thinks it's going to be interesting work. He gets a little team together. They don't really, they can't afford to uh, care whether the people they represent are innocent or guilty, as long as they can pay. You know. <laughs> And uh, as he realizes before long, there's in, in this world, there are there's innocent and there's professionally innocent. Right. When you're talking to someone inside who feels they're innocent, they may mean they didn't do it, or they may mean that the case against them has got loads of holes in it, and they reckon they should get off because the uh, you know the prosecution didn't do their job properly, which is professionally innocent as opposed to uh, you know okay. not actually having done it. I like that. I like that that subtle definition of the two. 
Very interesting. I'd love to hear more about your literary process. I always ask, especially fiction writers, about what their process is. What's the first thing you come up with? Is it the main character? Is it the location, the story? Well, for this one, because I wanted to write a series, normally I tend to pretty much <laughs> just go in with like a vague, like a setting and a character and see what happens. But uh, with this, I knew I definitely, you know, if we're going to write a series, you're going to have to, you know, the setup a better work and you better be happy with what you've got. So uh, I did some work on thinking about this, this little firm, the little team, Gethin and his two assistants. I knew, yeah, I knew the setting. And then I um, had to come up with an idea for a crime. And uh, I think that came, I think I knew the shape of the crime and the, there's a kind of a, it's quite a big twist at one point in the first book. And I, I think I had that idea and then, but I had no detail of the plot. I knew he had a, I knew Gethin had a gambling problem and that would play into it somewhere along the way, but I wasn't sure how. And yeah, so I had the very vaguest idea of a plot, but quite a solid character and setting and went off and, you know, saw what happened. So when you sit down, and you, you're on your laptop, computer, whatever you use, assuming you, you don't write with a pen and paper. You sit down, and you've got a blank document in front of you. How long before you start writing? And if, when you do start writing, what generally is... Because my assumption is that you don't start writing, say, chapter one, blah, blah, blah. Or is that how it works? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty much... Chapter Is one. Okay. <laughs> off we Fair go. Enough. Yeah. I'm wrong. It's why I'm not a writer. It's <laughs> like <laughs> so I just start off. Yeah. I mean, it may turn out that chapter one isn't chapter one after all. Mm. But yeah, I pretty much start the beginning. And, you know, at the beginning, I probably set myself like 500 words a day because I'm not sure what's happening. And I'm trying to do that basically before breakfast, sit down 500 words. And then I'm allowed to go and have some breakfast. <laughs> and, uh, How does that normally take you 500? Well, the actual bit of it probably takes you an incredibly small amount of time. The actual bit where you're writing, the time, the amount of time you're spending uh, drinking tea, staring at the space, checking your emails, whatever is, um, yeah, is most <laughs> of it. The actual, <laughs> the actual writing bit's pretty quick, but it's yeah. just getting it's getting yourself into the zone where you're there and you're writing it, and you're suddenly seeing it in your head what's going to be happening, and then you just type as fast as you can and get the you know. I mean, my typing's terrible, so I then have to spend about as long again, you know, retyping it into, uh, you know, readable English. Is that a, a learned skill to visualise a story? Or is that something that you're born with, do you think? Mm, I'm, I'm not sure how you, I'm not sure how you'd learn it. I wouldn't say you couldn't. I mean, I'm sure to some degree we can all do that. We all play out scenes in our heads that we imagine, you know, even if it's only when you've like had an argument with someone and you think back over it and think, oh, if I do, why didn't I say that? And why did I say the other thing, you know? And that's practically writing a story. So I think, yeah, I think to some extent we all do that. I'm not sure that everyone, when they write, does that. And they're probably, I mean, I read, I was reading about Martin Amis the other day, you know, and, Something you're saying about you should never repeat the same syllable in a sentence or something. I thought, Jesus Christ, that was a, you're literally going through your 
<laughs> your word, checking checking whether you've repeated a syllable. Madness. Yeah. But you know, to each their own. And he, you know, he did all right. So uh, but for me, yeah, it's just I, I see it almost sort of playing, and then I'm really just trying to get it down. I can hear the people talking. I'm trying to get down what they're, you know, what they're saying. And uh, yeah, it runs like that, really. If anyone listening wants to write a novel, what's the most crucial thing that they need to do? Is it just sitting in the chair? Do you have to box out time to write it? What advice would you give to someone who's just about to start writing their first ever novel? Yeah, I, I'm pretty big fan of routine on writing a novel. It's not like writing a song, say, where, you know, inspiration might strike at any minute and you can write a classic in 10 minutes. You know, novel writing takes time. So you've got to give yourself, you know, I find early morning is good. Other people, you know, may find late at night. Certainly when you're writing your first one, you're almost certainly not being paid. So you've got to work it around your, you know, your working day. I like first thing in the morning. I just started when I wrote my first one, you know, I had a young child at home at the time, you know, there wasn't much space in the day. So the only way I could see of doing it was just to get up, you know, get up an hour or so earlier than everyone else and, uh, you know, take that time to, uh, to get writing. And that, so, and that worked for me. Say, you know, I was going to write, but I think it was like between six and eight in the morning or something was my writing time. At first, it's got a bit later over the years, but, uh, you know, and yeah, and really try and hit, you know, a reasonable number of words, at least 300, I think, in that time. Mm. And, but really, you know, that's the sort of nuts and bolts of it. But the main thing is having a story or that you want to tell, really. And that may not be literally a whole worked through story, but it'll be a feeling, a time in your life or a place you've been or something that you felt, I really want to tell a story that happens in this world. I think if you just think, I want to be a writer, you're screwed, really. You have to be thinking, I want to tell a story. And that's the, uh, and have some ideas of that. You don't have to have the whole thing, but you need like a person or a place or something to get you started and then get up early or stay up late and get those words down. It's interesting you touch on that because I spoke to Simon Farker before he came on and he said the crucial thing is if he wasn't being paid to write books, he would still write. Whereas you kind of touched on it there. Some may want to get into it to become a writer, become a Mm. successful author. And you said it earlier as well, your first book, basically is for free right so it's you can't expect a you can't expect it to necessarily get picked up if it does it might not be by someone that's recognized as a a well-established publisher do you think it's right that passion has to come before everything uh well i think if you're going to write the kind of books that people are going to love then it has to (laughs) has to start with passion i mean i know people you know Fiction's quite a big umbrella. There's lots of different things you can write. You know, you can write fiction for money. There are, you know, any number of online courses that will tell you how to self, you know, how to achieve self-publishing success. And if you can bang out, you know, a novel every two months with the same character and stick it on, you know, Kindle or whatever, you can make money. I mean, that's that's fine. I mean, you can do it like that, but I very much doubt that any of those. Books are going to be read in, you know, a year's time, let alone 50 years' time. I think if you want, 
if you have something you want to say, yeah, I think books we remember, we remember them because the author had a passion that drove them to write them. Yeah, I agree. Finally, let's talk about, and I want to make sure I say this right, because I learned the pronunciation. You're the co-organizer of the LAN Festival. Am I saying that right? That's right. Yeah, it looks like Oof. it. It looks like it's going to be pronounced Lochan. It's weird because yeah. it's it's in Wales, but it looks like an Irish, you know, like an Irish spelling. And yeah, I do a thing called the Lan Weekend because it sounds like you know long weekend. Mm. Yeah. But if, when people read it, the part that that doesn't work at all. They just go Lochan <laughs> Weekend. What's that mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, like a three-day f- – it's it's the place where Dylan Thomas set under Milk Wood, you know, it's kind of classic Welsh seaside village. It's And he caught, you know, in his version, it's people with mad people, and uh, it's pretty much the same today. It's a extraordinary little place. And we do, yeah, a three-day festival, which is a mixture of, like, um, books, comedy and music and general, you know – people having a laugh really it's like we keep it deliberately small it sells out because we we just use the places in in the village like the church hall and the Mm -hmm. and the church and the pub and there's no green rooms or anything so all the acts just have to mix in with everyone else and it's just a you know particularly when the sun shines it's just a brilliant weekend really that sounds cool for anyone who's who's listening my listeners know how much I struggle with Welsh place names. A lot of my Welsh listeners get a kick out of how I say things. But this word, Larn, is spelled, basically it's the word laugh with A-R-N-E. So Laughan is what I thought it was, but it's Larn. So that's that's exactly. what it is. That's we had, is. Uh, there was one actor was coming, um, Edwin Collins, uh, was coming down from Scotland to it. And we called him up like a few days before and saying, hey, Edwin, you everything all right for coming to Larn? And he said, yeah, yeah, no, all good. Yeah, yeah, we, you know, we're going to take the ferry. We went, you're going to do what? (laughs) (laughs) And it turned out, because he'd only heard it pronounced. So he was heading for Larn, L-A-R-N-E, in Northern Ireland. Right, got you. Which would have been hilarious when he rocked up there on the day, saying, there's nobody here. (laughs) Oh, you got to love the Welsh language. I certainly get a kick out. I try to pronounce stuff. But yeah, John, I really appreciate your time and good luck with the series, the Gethin Grace series. And again, if anyone wants to learn more about the Cardiff 3, pick up a copy of Bloody Valentine. The second edition is out now. And yeah, appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. Cheers. Enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank you.